Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast, your weekly dose of all things football tactics and coaching related. I'm your host, Sam Scully, and we've another exciting episode for you all today. We've been incredibly lucky to have some wonderful guests on the podcast in recent months from all sorts of footballing backgrounds. Some are ex-pros, some started out as scouts, some even began writing tactical analysis pieces here at TFA, making us immensely proud to be part of their journey into the professional game. Some of the guests we've had on the podcast were even former and current managers in England's top flight divisions across the men and women's game. Today, we have another very big guest on the podcast in the form of yet another ex-Premier League manager, somebody who's been to the top of the football pyramid and competed against some of the greatest of all time, including Sir Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger. I was delighted today to be joined by Brian McDermott, the former manager of Reading and Leeds United. Having worked as a scout for nine years with Reading, McDermott eventually became the caretaker manager. During his interim stint, he picked up consecutive FA Cup wins against Liverpool at Anfield and Burnley helping the Royals to the FA Cup quarterfinals. Brian was eventually handed the job on a permanent basis, and in 2012, following a 1-0 victory against Notts Forest, Reading were promoted back to the Premier League after winning the championship. Unfortunately, McDermott was unable to keep Reading in the top tier, but still achieved a feat that many could only dream of. Brian eventually went on to become the chief scout at Arsenal, and later the manager of Leeds United, before heading back to Reading once more. Brian spoke to me for an hour today, and I was incredibly grateful to listen to him discussing his tactics, management methods, his promotion campaign at Reading, his battles with mental health, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy, and please make sure to give us a five-star rating to help grow the podcast, and to allow as many people as possible to learn from our wonderful guests. So now, let's go talk to Brian. Brian, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. How have you been? Very good, Adam. Very good. Nice to see you. Nice to meet you. I'm looking forward to chatting to you. What have you been doing in your spare time? Uh, I've been doing loads of stuff, really. Um, I've done a mentoring course with the LMA, sort of to mentor managers in the league. Um, I'm doing a presentation that I present to clubs and businesses and organisations, etc., called Winning, Losing, Mental Health and Finding Balance, which I really enjoy doing. Just the kind of year in my life as far as losing the playoff final in mm. 2011 and then going on to winning the championship and getting promoted to the Premier League and bits and bobs that go with that. So yeah. I enjoy doing that. So I'm doing plenty, really. Something I always wanted to know is, obviously, you have to give these talks in front of a lot of people and managers constantly have to give talks to their players and they stand up in front of them. Was public speaking always something you were good at or was it something you kind of had to adapt to, you got better at maybe? Shocking. I was shocking. Um, I remember the first time that I ever sat, spoke in front of a dressing room, I was at Yeovil as assistant manager. And the manager said to me, oh, can you just name the lads, the free kicks, what we're doing? And I just stood there and froze. Did not know what to say. He had to take, he had to take over. Um, and I just... To be honest, I just practiced and just spoke in front of a few people, then I've spoken more. And then I'm okay at it now. I, I don't mind doing it. But oh, when I started, I was shocking, absolutely shocking. I was petrified. Well, you were a player with Slow Town, I think it was, before you took over as a player manager in '96, if I'm correct. Was no, it- I was I was player man. I, I, I played five or six games for Slough as a manager. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a player, I was a manager. I was just finishing then. Was it something you were ready for, though? You know, did you feel prepared and was it always something you wanted to go into? No, I was I was organised. I was doing the uh, Southtown Football in the Community. I'd set up this kind of Football in the Community course mm-hmm. all over Slough and all over this region. And um, 
I was asked to do the job, basically. I, I never, never wanted to do it, never applied to do it. And I just went straight into it. And obviously, I had a football background, so that's why they obviously chose me. Um, but no, I wasn't looking to, to be a manager. It was, I've, I've never really chased jobs in my life. I just Things just happen, and that's kind of how it's been for me. How did you learn to ad- adapt to such a... Because I'd imagine being a football manager, obviously, is such a difficult job. And if you you said you wasn't really something you had planned to go into, I'd imagine maybe it was quite daunting to take over at first, was it? Um, do you know what? You just learn. You just learn and do... I've got experience of being a player, but being a player and being a manager and being in the dressing room, mm-hmm. I was assistant manager at Yeovil previous. So I'd seen, I'd seen enough, and I'd worked with enough managers, so I just got on with it quite honestly. Um, and uh, and and I learned on the job, and I think that's how most people learn. You know, people say, "Oh, yeah. I'm not sure I can do this. I'm not sure I can do that." That's fine. Just get on with it and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes it's better to be thrown into the deep end almost to see if you can sink or swim. You then went on to become chief scout at Reading. Was 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 you had did you have scouting experience prior? Was that always something you enjoyed doing or no? How, how did the talks come about to get into such a, had, a great job? I had none. Mm-hmm. So I was thirty odd years of age, just finished managing at Woking. I'd met Alan Pardew who was manager at Reading in a game when I was manager at Woking when he was scouting at Brentford. We had a chat about whatever, and he rang me one day and just said, "Will you meet him, chief scout of the club and under seventeen manager?" And I went, "Yep, no problem, I'll do that." And I didn't understand, I didn't know about scouting, didn't know what to do, but I knew that to find players and do match reports, and I thought, "Well, I can do that." And I also then had to coach the under seventeens, and I could do that. I mean, I knew how to coach players. I'd got all my badges and stuff, so I just got on with that as well. It's the same sort of thing. And it was just learning on the job. And I did a lot of work. I did a lot of hours. I, do, I drove all over the country. So, yeah, it was just another sort of one of them things that someone asked me to do something and I said yes. How did you juggle those two roles? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> Steve Coppel speaks about that, actually. And he said uh, he didn't know. So what happened was I, I was under-17 manager, under-19 manager eventually, and then reserve manager. Mm-hmm. Um, when I became the sort of, I, I, I kind of wanted to keep my hand in on, on the manager side. I don't know why, subconsciously, uh, plus the chief scout. I was traveling all over, at some point, I was traveling all over the world, mm-hmm. plus coming back and then coaching and then, and then taking the reserves. But I had Nigel Gibbs with me. Nigel was doing all the coaching side of it. And I was at the training ground now and again. So, how did I juggle it? I don't know is the answer. I just got on with it and uh, I did it. Um, but it was it was basically two roles, mm-hmm. so they were getting value for money. What was the most important traits you looked for when scouting a player, from a technical perspective, but also in terms of? I'm always interested to know how scouts look at players. You know, not in terms of their technical or tactical skills, but their personality, their behaviour, how they speak to referees, etc. Yeah, listen, that's a massive subject. Um, mm-hmm. I always, I always speak about what a player can do, first and foremost, not what he can't do. A lot of people talk about, he can't do this, can't do that. So tell me what he can do. Um, you have to look at what the manager wants. Does he fit into the team? Does he fit into the environment? So you've got your scout like me, watches a game, and you've got your analytics department who see how far they can run and whatever. And, and then you've got a situation where 
someone rings a club and asks the manager what's he like as a character that's where it's a bit flawed you know you're talking about the side that's really really important the mental side of it can he handle it you know can he handle playing for Leeds United or can he handle playing for Man United or can he handle playing for Arsenal actually handling that badge those big badges is sometimes difficult um and that's where it's a little bit flawed. And I've been talking to a company just lately about the mental side of it. And they've, they've, um, it's been really, really good. And they've got a formula where they can put all that sort of, all the sort of, um, the social media, the interviews, the paper interviews that, that a player has done and put it into a computer and come up with, can they, how they handle this, how they handle that. It's been really, really interesting for me. Um, so that's a side of it that I think is important. But there's loads of different things that come into it. And, and I, as a manager, I knew what I wanted. I knew how I wanted to play and I knew what kind of player. And I think a lot of it's down to the manager, what he's looking for. How how wide was the net cast when you, at Reading when you were scouting in terms of where you would scout? Was it just Britain and Ireland? Because I know we spoke actually uh, the other day on the phone and you, you, you scouted a lot of players in Ireland and we'll get on to them, obviously, Kevin Doyle and Shane Long. But was there anywhere outside of Britain and Ireland that you scouted, or was it just that region? No, we scouted everywhere. We scouted France. We scouted. Steve Koppel said to me in 2006, uh, I'd like you to go to the African nations. I went to the African nations in Egypt in 2006, start of 2006, to scout players there. So we did tournaments. Mm-hmm. We did France. We did, uh, we did America. We did Germany. We did everywhere. Um, we had a really, really good structure in place. Nick Hammond was director of football. I was a head scout. We had our scouts. Um, but we did a lot of scouting and tried to find players for not a lot of money because we always ran the football club in the black. So we managed to buy low and sell big. Mm-hmm. And that was a great structure um, at Reading, which worked for a long, long time. As a chief scout, I would imagine you know, scouts from the club are coming to you and maybe they're giving recommendations. Is it up to you then to kind of to go and watch those players individually? I mean, probably the best of what they've, what the other scouts have came to you with. Do you then pick some players that you think, right, I think these would be the best fit and then you go watch them? Or how does that relationship work? That's it. I mean, the scouts will come with the player. And if it's a player in England, generally I knew who the player was. So, you know, I'd be sending them off to watch the the, the players. It was the players are abroad that I used to watch a lot of, and go abroad and watch, and then come back. And if I was absolutely convinced, I'd speak to Nick Hammond, our director of football, and for example, Steve Coppel, and then I would put together a, 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 my ideas on what the player was about and how he fitted into our club. Mm-hmm. And then Steve would go and watch him, or we wouldn't, or or, or we put videos together for him to have a watch. And we, we, we all worked together. That was the key. There was no egos. We all worked together. And we got a lot of, we got a lot of them right. We got the occasional one wrong as well. But uh, for, what, for what we were as a club, it worked really well. I spoke last week with a scout who worked at a Serbian Super League club. And he used to write with Total Football Analysis, and I was speaking to him, and he said that I asked him about dealing with rejection as a scout because, obviously, you can put an awful lot of work into scouting a player and you're convinced you're adamant that this guy is perfect for your team and then maybe it be financial reasons or maybe the manager disagrees with the player maybe being not being the right fit. 
How do you? How did you deal with that? And was it just something that like water off a duck's back, or was it something that really maybe bothered you at the time? Um, not overly bothered me because the manager's prerogative is the manager's prerogative. I was a manager, so I understood what that looked like. Listen, every scout that I've ever met, and I'm talking about everyone, has always got a sad story about someone they missed out on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've all got those stories. But you didn't sign them, so it doesn't count. So it's about getting them into your football club. And part of the thing about scouting, it's no good putting a report in about a player. The report Sometimes the report just gets just left there. And then the scout say, oh, I told you to sign him. No, you didn't. I always used to say, if you are adamant about someone you're trying to sign, you go knocking at that door. Come to me, knock at the door, knock at the door, go again. I used to do that with the manager, with Steve. Um, because sometimes that's how it is. If you're that, if you really believe in what you're doing, then you knock at the door and you get that deal done. Uh, and sometimes it's because you've got too many players in that position, you don't get it done. Um, I have lots of stories about players that we might have missed out on, but no one cares. You know, it's about the players that you deliver and the players that you get over the line. And that's it. It's not easy to get a player over the line. It really isn't. There's always, if he's a good player, there's four or five different clubs in for him. So um, there's a lot of stories about scouts who say, oh, we could have had him, we could have had You don't necessarily know that. And then you don't know how the player would develop, you know. So every case is different. That's how I see it. Was it difficult to deal with if a player didn't work out, per se? You know, if he came to the club and he didn't quite hit the ground running and maybe he was eventually moved on. Was that kind of difficult? Do you know what? Some players work for some managers, some players work for other managers. That's kind of how it is. You know, the amount of times you see a player going to one club, he has to dip lower to come back again. And that's that's how it is. What I believe is this. I don't believe you should write players off too quickly. Just if they have to drop down again to come back up again, no problem with that. That's how it is. And I've always said just find see what the person looks like first. It's really important to scout the person that... Uh, you, you're scouting a player at a certain level and then see what he's like as a person. That's really important. See what his personality, find out about him. Um, and that's really, really important. So, look, sometimes they don't work out and sometimes you spend a lot of money uh, and they don't work out. And uh, that's why you've got to try to minimise your risk in your scouting. Ryan, after a couple of it was a poor run of uh, form. Brendan Rodgers parted ways and ultimately you became the, the caretaker boss at the time. But you spoke earlier about sub, maybe subconsciously you always kind of were interested in management and you were, it was always that, it was always in your mind that maybe, maybe you wanted to do something that you spoke about being the under 17s manager on the 19s and reserves, etc. Did you go to the board and recommend yourself for the job to take over? Did they come to you? Or how did the conversation happen to take over eventually? as, as just caretaker at the time. Um, they made a decision on Brendan and Brendan left and they came to me um, and they asked me to look after the team. That was it. Um, subconsciously, did I want to be a manager? Maybe. But I always think in football, you know, there's so many different jobs and it's so uh, such an insecure business. I wanted to try and keep as many strings to my bow as possible. Mm-hmm. So I did my coaching badges. I was doing my scouting. I was doing the reserves. And then all of a sudden, I was in the building. So it was kind of like pretty obvious for me from with my experience that I had at that point to take the role. 
And that's how that's how they would have looked at it as well. And then Nigel Gibbs stepped up as assistant manager. Um, Nick Hammond stayed as director of football. So there wasn't too much turmoil. And most of the, the players that were in the building, I'd scouted most of them. So I knew them. Um, so it fitted. Yeah. Did you feel pressure when you first got it? Or was it were you relatively at ease because... Well, you weren't actually the, the permanent manager, so there wasn't that, you know, pressure on your back that you needed to get results quickly. Was it, were you, or did maybe you did feel the pressure? No, I wanted the job. So mm-hmm. I told him, I told him on day one, I said, you know, they said, we wanted me to look after it. And I said to him, no, I want the job. So he said, well, you're going to see how you get on. Um, and I told the players that I wanted the job because I think sometimes if you go in as a caretaker, and the players think you're only going to be there for a short period of time. You don't necessarily get the performances that you want because they're not sure. They're thinking, well, he ain't going to be there very long. Well, actual fact, what happened was our first three league games, we only got two points. So we blew, we drew against Bristol City, we drew against Swansea, we got smashed by Plymouth 4-1. And the next game was against Liverpool at home. Mm. So well, I'm under a bit of pressure because we just got beaten 4-1 at Plymouth. Could have been six. Um and we get a great result against Liverpool. We draw one all, but then we've got to go back to Liverpool to try and get a result. And then we go to Liverpool and we win at Anfield. Then all of a sudden people think, oh, we'll see. Then we play Burnley in the FA Cup because the next league game was Newcastle at home, but it was called off, which did me a favour, actually, because I thought we weren't going to beat Liverpool. We weren't, we weren't ready to beat Newcastle at that point. We went to Anfield and won 2-1. And then we beat Burnley in the FA Cup. So I've got two two good games, like two good results FA Cup-wise, three poor results in the league, particularly, not poor, but two points out of nine. And then they said to me, John Medeski, so John Medeski, our chairman, said, you're going to get the job, but I'm not going to tell anyone until we play the next two games. The next two games were Sheffield United and Forest, not in Forest away. I thought that won't go down well. We could lose both of them. We did. <laughs> and, then he annou- and then he announced me to the fans and they were completely underwhelmed. I think the fans must have thought, well, he's, only, he's, one, he's got lucky in a couple of cup games and now he's got two points out of, out of 15 and they've given him the job. So the time I was really nervous was the next game against Barnsley and we won it 1-0 and Shane scored the winner, Shane Long. And I thought, oh, that was a relief. And then we went on, we went on a run of wins. When you first took over as caretaker then, obviously results were important and ultimately that's why Brendan lost his job. But what else was important for you to build at the time when you first took over? What were you looking to create in the dressing room or what did you look to change on the pitch and or maybe tactically as well? I changed the way we played a little bit. I put um, Gilfie Sigerson played in the 10 role. Um, we did play one. I mean, our front four was, at the end of it, it was... Um, it was Gilfie Sigerson in the 10, Shane Long in the 9, Jimmy, Jimmy Kebe and, and Joby McEnough. I mean, that's a, that's a strong mm. front four. Yeah. So we played with one striker and, and, and two central midfield players. I think Brian Howard and Jay Tavern playing centre midfield. So, you know, we were passing it around. We, were doing, we played some lovely football. Um, so that's what we did, really. That's what I, what I did. I mean, just try to get the group together and just try to win one game at a time. We, just, we, we had to get ourselves out of trouble. That was the only game in town. We ended up eighth in the league, so we did well. We got to the quarterfinal of the FA Cup. Should have got to the semis. We were tuning up against Villa and got beat 4-2. Um, but there you go. And then the following year, we, we changed the system again and we went to 4-4-2. And then the following year, we got to and we got to play our final. And the following year, having lost Shane Long, having lost, um, 
having lost Matt Mills, our captain, having lost our other centre-half, Kishner Vili, we had to rebuild again. Just before, because I, I, I actually have a couple of questions I want to ask about the recruitment side when Long and Mills, etc. left. But I just want to ask you first about going back to the Anfield and the Burnley games. Did you have to change how the team played and did you, or how did you mentally prepare the players for going to such an environment? I mean, going to Anfield is never, ever, you know, easy. No matter who's in charge, no matter the players, Liverpool are, will always be one of the best sides in the country they have been for several decades. How do you mentally prepare your players for stepping out onto that pitch and being able to give them the, you know, the mental strength to say, we can win this game, which you did? Um, well, we just got beat by by Plymouth, and we so we got we written off completely. Mm-hmm. And I just put that to bed, um, and then we just concentrated, and we did. We went through the process, you know, made sure we knew everything about Liverpool, made sure we prepared ourselves, made sure we did what we had to do on the training pitch, tried to get the the rest and um, and the training regime right. All of the process, we went through the process again. Because that's what you can do. Win, lose, or draw, you've got to go through the process. And we called it win the next game, WNG. So that was our process, WNG, win next game, process, process, process. So we go through the process. So we get a team together, we get a draw against Liverpool. Then we got to go to Anfield. Now, I've got a strange dilemma. In my head, I've got a strange way of thinking. I think I can, we can win every game. Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal. And then I've got this other side to me that, that goes, you could get big 6-0 today. So I've got these two sides to me, one shoulder and then the other shoulder. But generally, I can put over to a team, I think we can win. And I put that over. The staff put it over. And I thought we could. I thought we could win. So I think it's, a, it's an inner belief from, from the manager and the coaching staff to forget what's just gone on, stay in the moment, which is really, really important in whatever you do, and then go through the process, WNG. How much did you prepare for those bigger games in terms of opposition analysis? And did it did it change how you trained with the players on the pitch? Did you, you know, coach certain aspects on the training pitch to get them prepared for the game against Liverpool or or Bournemouth? Or just in general, when you made the step up to the Premier League, eventually you would obviously play teams like Manchester City, Manchester United, Arsenal, etc. How did your planning during the week change? And how did the tactics you deployed for that game change? Did you tweak out a side? Maybe you would sit deeper or you would, you know, look to have the ball less, of course. No, we, we planned for the opposition, whatever the opposition was. We planned. So we we, we, went, we went through the process. I remember at Liverpool, actually, um, when we were playing at Anfield, there was a space just after... Stephen Gerrard scored just before half-time to make it 1-0 to, to Liverpool. And they were quite fortunate to go in 1-0 mm-hmm. in my opinion. Anyway, they're 1-0 up. And if you're 1-0 up at Anfield, Liverpool generally go on and get three or four against a team like Reading. That's what that's how it was. Anyway, just after half-time, they battered us for about 20 minutes. And we changed the shape of our team. We just we withdrew a striker into a midfield role and we went three in midfield just to try and get a grip of the game, stay in the game. I was a great believer in staying in games. If we'd have lost another goal at that point, we'd get beat. So we're staying in the game. With about 20 minutes to go, we're right in the game. Because obviously, whatever the team, if you're 1-0, only 1-0 up, you don't always have all of the game all of the time. And they had a lot of the game, didn't put the game to bed. We carried on playing. And Shane got a penalty with about a minute to go. 
and Gilfie Sigerson rolled it in the corner. So we stayed in the game. And in extra time, I honestly had this belief with all the players around me that we, we went back to 4-4-2 and we won the game. And I thought we were going to win. And, and I honestly believed that we were going to win. And that was the, but that side of me which says, OK, let's... Now we've, we've stayed in the game. We've done what we've had to do. We've weathered that particular storm just on. But sometimes you have to change during the game. And that's what we did. And that made the difference, actually. Do you think it's important for a manager to be able to adapt to the opposition then? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, God, when you're playing against the top-class opposition, it can be, if you're getting absolutely, um, if you're getting murdered, then you've got to change. Mm -hmm. And even if you change for 20 minutes or whatever it takes, you've got to do that. And you have to see what, what you have to see what that looks like. Uh, unfortunately, we did we did do that, and we, and we I did that quite a lot in games. But I generally went back to how we started again toward the end because, especially in the championship, I always felt it was worth gambling to get three points <laughs> because if you want to go into the playoffs, you have to get more three points than yeah. one point. You know, it's, it's a big difference. And we won a lot of games late on. Late on, we won a lot of games. So after your obviously your when you when you had your first full season in charge, did you, was there a belief in the dressing room that, yeah, we can have a really good season this time around because you had, you had had the players for a couple of months after Rogers left, of course, and maybe you started to feel like you were implementing your style of play on the team and they knew what you wanted in 2010-11 did at the start of the season, were, the, were you convinced that you could crack on and get a playoff spot or even more? No, I didn't even think like that, Alan, to be honest. I never, it didn't, it, it wasn't, it wasn't something that I was, I was thinking about. I was just thinking about the first game of the season, then the second, then the third, then the fourth, and going through the process of the journey. I didn't think about where we might end up. I just wanted to go through process. It was always about win next game, process, process, process. You hear it with managers all the time. And then sometimes a manager will come out and say something and you think, well, why would you put yourself under that much pressure? You know, you've got to get into the playoffs to start of the season. Really? Let's try and win the first game and then try and win the second game and go through your processes because it mounts pressure on the players. The last thing you want is to mount pressure on the players. Our players were really relaxed. You know, I, I saw them in the dressing room before games and there was a lot of laughing and joking in the dressing room. And apparently that's how it was with Alex Ferguson at Man United. You'd be surprised. A lot of those lads were laughing and joking and they, they wanted to go out and do their stuff. And a relaxed dressing room for me is really, really important. Um, so, I mean, the first season we got out of trouble. The second season we got to a playoff final. We're now building, but we lost. And psychologically to lose a playoff final, for me anyway, it took me ages to get over that. So this is what I wanted to ask you next. And obviously you said there for you psychologically, it was really difficult to, to get over that because it, as we know, the championship is 46 games. It's grueling at times. Yeah. You know, and then to come so close and to lose must have been devastating. But how did you, as much as it was difficult for you to deal with, you had to stand up then in front of a squad of 20-odd players and try and reinvigorate them and G them up then for the next season. How did you do that? I had to take myself out of the way. I still believed in the players. No one knew that I was hurting the way that I was hurting. So I had to get myself out of the way and start delivering my message to people that I believed in. I actually really believed in these guys. But you've got to remember now, Shane Long's leaving. Matt Mills is leaving. Uh, Joe Kishnaville is leaving. These are really important players. Mm -hmm. So we have to, to start with, we have to replace those players. And we replaced them really well. We got Kasper Gorkasin, who'd won the league the year before with QPR. So he knew what he was doing. And we've got Alan Lafondra from... Uh, uh, um, 
from Rotherham who scored goals um, for less than a million quid between the two of them. We'd, were you, were you looking for like for like replacements for each player, or, or were you, was there a way you wanted to adapt the style so you maybe but brought players in that were different to Mills and different to Long? No, I couldn't replace Shalongi. I never when Longy's the one player that I always look back at as a man think, I'm in trouble now. Because he was so important to us, the way you'd run him behind, mm-hmm. the way he would score. Listen, he scored 23 goals for me that season and made 13. He was he got penalties, he got he got an incredible amount of goals, like 40 goals he was due to, you know. So I thought, wow, how are we going to replace that? So uh, and, and then, you know, we had, um, we had, it's like Gilfie Sigerson. Gilfie Sigerson went the year before. Okay. So how are we going to place Gilfie's quality on the ball? He said, we took Ian Hart. So Ian Hart was playing for Carlisle. We got him for 75 grand. Ian Hart replaced Gilfie Sigerson. And in a strange way, everyone go, well, that's ridiculous. Totally different position. But we replaced the set play quality with someone with top, top draw set play quality, which Ian had. And also, not knowing it at the time as much as, as I know now, you're talking an absolute hungry man, wanted to win, still wanted to be successful, incredible ambition. So much time for him. Um, I'm, I'm digressing here, but I love Ian Hart. And it's like, it's like I always say, you're, you're dressed, your group of people is only as good as your senior players. And I had great senior players. Andy Griffin, Jason Roberts came through the door and uh, Ian Hart, Casper Gorkis, Joby McEnough, all of them, all of them. I can't, I can't name them. All. We haven't got long enough. Um, but yeah, top top players. You said top. you said about the the dressing room and how important it is. The the players were kind of relaxing, laughing, and joking. Was there something that you did to make them relax? Did you, you know, was it something your team talks, or were they just genuinely just relaxed people? They just liked the company of each other. And I think that's a group of people, and I won't call it like a family because families fall out more than <laughs> yeah. fall out a lot. So we won't call it a family, but it's just a group of people that come together. It's really hard to get this, you know, in football. Really hard to get it. Um, uh, put your ego to bed, come to work, that sort of thing. Um, and the dressing room managing itself. You know, the, the lads were, you know, if they turned up late, they find themselves. I didn't have to get involved in that. I didn't want to get involved in finding people for being late. They did it themselves. And that's what you find with, with, with great dressing rooms. They deal with it. If you look at Liverpool's dressing room, you've got your Hendersons, your Milners, people like that. You can see what top people they are. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know them, but they look it to me. Um, you know, Manchester City players as well. That sort of thing, that De Bruyne, company, people like that, just running that dressing room. The manager doesn't need to do that. Let the players do it. And when you've got a great dressing room, that's what they do. And they love each other's company as well, which is, I, I reflect on it now and think, what a great bunch of people. And you said it's very difficult to get in football, which it definitely is. But how do you, I'd imagine it's even more difficult to maintain that. And obviously over your you know, four years in charge, it must have been, or three and a half years, four years, sorry, it must have been very difficult because you would have had to replace players like when Long left, like when Mills left. You know, you would have had to bring guys in and were you worried about kind of upsetting the balance in the dressing room? Or? Yeah, but the year we went up, we replaced, we got Casper Gorkis in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got Adam Lafondre in. Great lads. Um, and we played a different way again. You know, we we won that championship that year with about 30% possession and we played on the counter-attack. Um, 
But you can only do that if all, every single one of your players knows what they're doing and knows what the unit looks like and knows their individual role within the unit. Mm -hmm. And you can only play on the counter-attack if you've got pace on the wide areas, which we had. So we always thought it was an opportunity when the opposition had the ball. We liked it, which is weird, isn't it? But that's how it was. Did you have a set style of play and you wanted to implement or was it more so you know fitting the players that you had at your disposal we, we fell on it really so we would play away from home especially Noel Hunt would maybe start with Jason Roberts Noel would drop into the midfield role as a striker and look after the deep line midfield players because they generally played with three Jimmy Kebe, Joby McEnough would narrow off in midfield so we made four midfield players in the middle of the pitch and they were so disciplined, they knew exactly what they were doing. And we just waited. We sort of kind of quite a, a low block. Um, and we just waited. And we also used to say, listen, guys, when they've got the ball, that's when we got our chance. Because most, te most teams play in front. Most teams aren't Man City. Like if you watch Man City keep the ball, they're always looking to probe and going behind. Yeah. A lot of teams we found were just passing the ball in front of us. And listen, I would get bored watching them. And it, it would be like, you know, just passing in front and but I was always aware that once that something happened we would go and hit him on the break Adam Federici our goalkeeper was unbelievable distributor of the ball as soon as he got it we, we attacked as soon as he got it but you can only do that with a disciplined bunch of guys and that's what we had was coaching transitions then was it very present in the training sessions yeah yeah, I mean, especially when Adam got it, Adam Federici, we, you know, he had that sidewinder kick, you know, he was brilliant at that. Um, and he could knock it into a wide area and then we would literally go into a, on the attack. Or if a ball was was um, cut out, a square ball, Kebe, McEnough were on their bikes and they could run and 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 uh, Noel and Jason Roberts and Adam Fondra would you know, they were all ready to get into the box to 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 try and score. And we we're very, very, very good on the counter. Mm. Brian, you spoke about win next game, win next game, win next game. But was there a point in that 2011-12 season where you said to yourself, maybe even just to yourself, we we can win this? No. No. Oh. No, there wasn't. But I'll tell you what it was. When we got promotion... When we beat Nottingham Forest, Mikel Legend was scored and we won against Forest. I obviously knew we was in the Premier League. But I wasn't happy. So, because I wanted the boys to get a medal. And then the following week, we played against um, Crystal Palace. And if we win, we're basically up. We're going to win the medal. For me, it wasn't done. Um, anyway, we, 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 we drew the game to all against Palace. And I was really upset because I thought, Southampton had to go to Middlesbrough at five o'clock that day. And I thought Southampton would win at Middlesbrough. We had then to go to Dart, to Birmingham. I thought we might not win there um, because we'd done our bit, you know, that sort of thing after the Lord Mayor's show. Anyway, to cut a long story short, Southampton lost at Middlesbrough and we got promotion and we won the championship and they got medals. And I thought, you know, it, it was no more than these guys, these, these players, especially the senior players. They deserved. They'd been around a long time, and I wanted them all to get a medal, and they got a medal, and that meant a lot to me. It was your first time managing in the Premier League. Then, mm. how did you prepare yourself before you prepared a team? How did you prepare yourself to get ready for that? Was it something that you 
that didn't really phase you or was it quite daunting knowing that you would have to face off against some of, I mean, there was huge titans in the Premier League at the time, obviously Sir Alex Ferguson, Arsene Wenger, you would, would have been playing some top, top teams. How did you psychologically prepare yourself for that? I just, I just kind of just got on with it, really. It's once again, it's a, it's, a, it's a game of football. It's the top league in the world. I wanted to have a, my break in the summertime, which I got. Um, we had a change of ownership at the club, which changed the dynamics. Um, and the club, the club went into difficulties at that point. I think, you know, at our, at our greatest hour uh, as a football club we went into difficulties and we probably started doing things the way we wouldn't have done them the, a year before, if that makes sense. We had a young Russian owner who came in. Um, the, yeah, the dynamics were different. Um, but, you know, the first game of the season, we drew against Stoke. Second game of the season, we went to Stamford Bridge and we were 2-1 up in the 77th minute and got beat 4-2. Um, it took us a while to win, but... You know, we, we were still in the game. Once again, the lads were great. You know, they gave us everything. Uh, we didn't we didn't um, invest too much in players. We didn't have a lot of money to spend for whatever reason. So it was it wasn't an easy season to be honest. But the fact that you know you 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 you're in the shop window. You're you're there's a camera behind you, in front of you, at the side of you every every single day. You turn around, there's a camera, there's a camera wherever. It's a totally different world that you're living in in the Premier League. It's incredible. That must be tough to deal with just from a, on a personal level because obviously the, the Championship gets a lot of coverage too, but the Premier League is unmatched just around the world even. You know, mm-hmm. there's, 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 as you said, there's cameras everywhere. You even see when it zooms in and the manager has a camera over their shoulder. Mm-hmm. And it's incredible. So just on a personal level, you know, did, was that something that really bothered you? didn't bother me but it was interesting actually you say that it it, um, it might have changed my my demeanour a little bit maybe I started to make it more in my own head about me mm-hmm. so I've never done anything like that in my life really um, or maybe that was a and I watch it now and I watch interviews after games I watch interviews with people that are doing well and sometimes I think be careful because yeah, this, this game's got a great way of kicking you yeah um just be careful. Just, just be humble. Um, yeah, and, and it is. It's not easy to deal with, you know. You know, I do presentations on this. I do, you know, the the the, the fact that you lose a playoff final and then a year later, you get to a team into the Premiership and actually psychologically, for me personally, I can only talk for myself. I find that difficult to deal with. And actually, the success of 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 being really successful. I found that probably harder to deal with than the than the than the real low of of um, of losing the platform. Well, quite often there's there's the where people use the term arrival fallacy, which is when you almost you you have this idea built in your head that I'm going to achieve this goal that I want to achieve, and then when it actually does reach, it's not quite what we had planned in our head, and then you feel worse, which always amazes me. And it doesn't have to be a long time. It could be anything. You can know. You can dream up about this incredible dinner you're going to make, this pie, and then you make it, and it's probably not what you think. And then it, it gets you kind of down. And it's 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 strange that you said that. It's almost like you've reached the Premier Premier League. It's like wow, we got red and back to the Premier League, but you almost felt really low. You know, you you sound like you've lived it. <laughs> 
that's it. You've got it. It's a massive void. Mm. And I always live with this void that I've got, you know, that, that, that I know what the answer is. If I become a Premier League manager, I will not have this void inside me and I'll feel great and everyone will think I'm great and the world will change. It didn't. Uh, you know, I woke up after um, we just got beat. We we just beat Forest. Woke up that morning. I've been out the night before till about three o'clock in the morning. And uh, I say it in the presentation. Didn't feel any different. In fact, I felt worse. Because now, once you've achieved the pinnacle, you've actually achieved what you set out to do, get to the Premier League, and you don't, you don't feel better about yourself. That's a problem in itself. So you've just described it really, really well. And you said that you almost psychologically made it about yourself a bit, you, you felt. Mm. Did you, do you mean like you were almost more animated on the touchline? Did you, have, did you feel that pressure because you knew the camera was on you? Maybe you, you had to do, you had to be a bit more animated to kind of play up to the cameras or, would, or, or what did you kind of, no, would more, you elaborate on what you meant? So more off the pitch really, you know, maybe the way that I subconsciously dealt with people, I was a bit more reactive, a bit more abrupt, thinking, you know, I am that sort of style. Mm-hmm. And that's so not my personality. But it kind of like, it was like a chemical reaction inside me. I, I can't even describe it. Um, you know, I'd go into, I'd go into pubs and, and uh, look at people and think, do they know I am? Are they going to take a picture of me? And if I didn't, if they didn't take a picture of me, I'd give them a camera. And it was like, do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. this really strange, and that's not me as a person, but it, it became that that sort of thing for me. Um, and I didn't know what was going on. But I started to get off on that adulation and I started to want that adulation. Whereas today, I don't need all that stuff. I know what's real now, you know, and that was a job and that was it. That was my job. That's and how did you how did you wind yourself off at them? Oh God! Um, look, I, I went. I was at, I was in the Premiership. I went to Leeds, and Leeds is incredible. You know Leeds. Mm-hmm. It's massive. You know, it's like you can't walk down the street. Everyone knows Leeds. It's a big club. Great bunch of fan, a great fan base. Similar sort of thing. People know you are turmoil there and then I lost my job there and you know and uh, um, I had a few issues and I asked for help that's how I won myself and, and for the first time in 53 years I reached out and asked for a bit of help and that was seven eight years ago mm-hmm. so um, I'm in a, such a good place now you know I feel calm and I'm at peace and I don't have that void inside me anymore looking for external validation anymore Every now and again, I have that moment when I think, God, you know, what do they think of me? But I just let it go. I let those thoughts go now and just get on with my life. I think that external validation, and I know this is a an analysis of a football tactics podcast, but I'm really, things, psychology like this really interests me personally, because I think that external validation is really, it really takes its toll on your mental health sometimes, mm. because for whatever reason, somebody you've never met it matters to you what they think and it's almost you project so if i think i've put on weight per se yeah and i think they're thinking that they're not thinking that but i'm projecting my insecurity that i believe i put on weight onto that person yeah so i think that that's what they're thinking so i think it's it does really take its its toll on your mental health and it's, it's amazing that you did ask for help because that's obviously the most important thing is that yeah. you admit there's something wrong here i need to go and and get this help 
did you have help at the time from any managers in the Premier League in terms yeah. of when you were in the league and you were struggling for results? Did you get any words of wisdom from some of the coaches? Or No, not in the Premier League, but I'll tell you what I did. I got... Um... When the when the takeover was in place, was being put in place between Sir John Medeski leaving Reading and the new Russian Rona, Anton Zingarevas taking over, and I was really sceptical about it. Um, I thought I might leave, which is fine. He had his, he would have made his own decision. I rang Darren Ferguson. I hope he doesn't mind me saying it, and and asked if if his dad would ring me, Alex, Alex, and five minutes later he rang me, and um, we spoke about what was going on and I showed, I shared it with him and he was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And he really helped me. Uh, and he sent me a letter when we got promotion we t- and he talked about it in a letter. It meant a lot to me really, you know, he doesn't know me for Adam, but he was helping a younger guy through a time which was really, really difficult. So yeah, he, he was definitely person who, who re- I, I reached out to and he, he, on a professional level and, and he, and he, and he helped me. Brian, in the end, obviously, unfortunately, things didn't quite work out in the Premier League and, and Reading eventually went down. I know you you parted ways just before then. Was did you did you feel that coming or was it kind of you know, was it was it upset obviously it was upsetting for you. I'm sure you you loved your time at Reading and the fans, etc. But was it was it difficult to deal with at the time? Yeah, I didn't know I was coming. I mean, the reason I didn't was because I was told by the owner that whatever happens, you know, we didn't have a big budget. If we go down, you will be there to take try and take the team back up again the following year. And I've got nine, nine games to go. He made a decision to remove me. So it was a shock. Mm-hmm. Um, we played against Aston Villa. We got beat at home. Um, I was told to come to the Medeski at four o'clock in the afternoon three o'clock in the afternoon, sorry. And I was in the Medeski Hotel and there was no one there. And I thought, that's weird. And uh, this woman came down from upstairs and in the hotel and said, oh, can you come upstairs? And I didn't know she was, I thought this is weird. And then I went into the room and the, the owner was in there, Anton Singarovic was in there. And Nick Hammond, our director of football was next to him and he came out to me and he touched me on the shoulder. And I thought, this is, oh my God, I'm in trouble here. From the touch on the shoulder, I knew it was going to happen. And then he said it to me. It took about a minute and a half. And then I, I walked out and uh, I left. Uh, and, and Nick said to me, Nick said to me, have you got your car with you? And I went, what, do you want the car back? I'll get the back on. Um, he went, no, he started laughing. And, uh, I said, yeah, I've got my car. So that was it. How difficult was it then to say goodbye to the players that you had? Well, you you were obviously a scout and you had scouted so many of the players and then you became the manager and you worked with them for so long, almost like, you know, your unofficial family in a sense. Was that difficult to say goodbye? Didn't say goodbye. Didn't have a chance. It was That was the thing, really. I didn't really have a chance to say goodbye. Listen, I've seen them, most of them again in the past. We've, we had a game last year. Well, this year, Steve Coppel's team in 2005-06 and my team and our team in 2011-12, two promotion winners. Six, so we've all got back together. And you know, when you get back together, it's just like good mates again. Yeah. So I never, ever had a chance to say, you know, goodbye, which was fine. Um, but I was there 13 years, so I was very grateful for the 13 years that I had there. And I've done a lot of jobs there and I learned a lot there. And, um, and hopefully I did okay there as well. 
But you were the last manager to take Reading back to the Premier League. The closest they ever got was obviously in uh, 2017. I think it was in Yapstam was in charge and they, they unfortunately lost on penalties to Huddersfield in the playoff yeah. final. But your team was the last team to go back to the Premier League with Reading. Two, two, two managers and I'm very grateful that Steve Coppell was one of them. He's a really good friend of mine. I love Steve. Great to work with. And myself took Red into the champion into the Premiership, and and the club's a lot. It's very old. It's an old club. Uh, it's a historical club, which has now got a bit of history as well. You must feel looking back, although you might not have done it at the time, but surely you feel now a sense of pride in having done that. Yeah, it's, it's really good. You put it well, actually. There, it's um, I do uh, I, not at the time because I wasn't feeling good about myself. But now I look back with a sense of pride and I look at the, the staff, you know, my, the staff that worked with us, they were great, really talented people. The fans were really good to me at Reading and the players I loved, you know. So there was this real, and I look back at it now and I have conversations with some of the players and the staff and whatever. And I, I can keep it real now and talk about how it was for me at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting that no one knew I was, struggling at the time because it wasn't about me it was about trying to just make sure that we were win the next game stay on course well they say that being a manager is the, it's the loneliest position in the world did you feel that did you just feel alone and you couldn't reach out to talk to someone because you were so concerned with everyone else's kind of well-being and how they were prepared for a game oh listen I could be I could be lonely in a crowded room then mm. you know and there's a difference between nowadays between being lonely and being alone I'm quite happy on my own in my own company now and I'm I never used to be particularly happy in my own company whereas I am now which is different to what, what it was for me back in the day um and I could be 200 people in a room and feel alone I mean I'm a very shy person and I when I I have to go into a, a place where there's seven or eight people hanging around I've got to walk past them I'm like oh my god I don't even want to go there I find that really difficult uh, so I have to fight that for part of my personality, really. Is there ever a part of you that wants to get back into football? or you... I'm in football. People, you know, people say, you know, do you want to get back in? I don't know what that means. I, in I terms do... of management, I mean, in terms of... Well, yeah, but, you know, it's like everything else. I've never chased anything in my life. Mm-hmm. Never chased a job in my life. So... I've done 450 odd games as a manager. I mean, I, I've put a couple of young boys into different teams now. That I've watched, I watch a lot of lower league football now to see if I can see an 18, 17, yeah. 18 who, who needs a chance. Because there's a lot of lads out there who need a chance. Mm-hmm. So I asked one of my, I get a kick out of that. I do the presentations and I talk about all the stuff that you've picked up on today, actually, um, which is really important to me. That's the most important thing for me is sending a message out there, giving a message out there, you know, talking about whatever your stuff is. You know, you could talk about addictions. You can talk about imposter syndrome. You can talk about not feeling good enough, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really, really important to me, what, what I'm trying to do now. So I'm doing loads of stuff like that, mentoring managers as well. I finished that course in December and I'm looking forward to getting more involved in that. So I'm doing loads of that. And, um, yeah, I, I uh, as a manager, listen. If my if my brother was the chairman, uh, I'd consider it. Mm-hmm. Because you, it's pick uh, the right chairman. Yeah. Do you feel though that if you were to take a management management position, just per se, you would you're in the right headspace now to do so to be a better manager than you were at the time for yourself? I mean, yes. You think you clarified it at the end for myself. Mm-hmm. 
I was fine and I did fine because I kept taking myself out of the equation. It wasn't about me, if that makes sense. Now, so so this is how I describe it. Would you suggest would you say to me it's resilient to lose a fight playoff final and then the following year get promotion? Would you say that's resilience? Of course, yeah. Yeah, well, that's fine. But for me, what's that all about? Mm-hmm. So you could feel resilient in the way you can keep going and whatever, but you've got no mental well-being. What's the point of that? Yeah. What's the point of being resilient and then thinking, oh, here we go. Can I do this? Doubts, doubts. If you've got mental well-being and resilience and you've got them both in a, in, in, together, that's when you know you're in, in, a, in the right place. So results don't define you. Now, that means this. Of course, results are make the difference, but they can't define you. The process is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And when you lose, you take it on the chin and you get make sure you, you're mentally in a good place. When you win, make sure mentally you're in the best place. Because I've just I've just said to you, actually, winning was harder for me mentally in the end because I became someone I didn't like. Yeah, it almost has a a reverse effect. People think that by not speaking out you're being strong in a yeah. weird way if that makes sense but it's 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 not the case it's that's the easiest thing to do you know people people think that it's the, that's the hardest thing to do because it's strong that's not that's the easiest thing to do mm. the hardest thing is to speak out yeah that's what takes strength yeah. you know not bottling it inside that's 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 easy you know what i mean that's why so many people do it more people do it than actually speak out so it's 100 percent agree with that and that's what I did for a long, long, long time. Said nothing to no one and no one knew. And that's the thing. And now I did something. I did a post the other day on LinkedIn and got a great reaction. I'm scared to put this post out about how I was feeling as a manager. Uh, and the reaction was, and I thought, well, it's not just me then. And that's the nice thing. You know, you can relate. People go, I feel a bit like that. I feel like that. I feel like that. Because at the time you think it's just you that feels like that. And I think that's the key to know that there's other people and there might be managers at top level. There might be anybody. It can be one of the staff members at the football club. You know, let's look after them. It could be one of the players. It could be any of the players. So, you know, we've all got our own journeys. Everyone, some people you think, wow, he's so strong and he's this and that. People thought that about me. And I wasn't really. I was just trying to get by. Yeah. Brian, I'm aware we're coming up to time, but I always like to end on this question because it's something I'm always interested in. Who have been your biggest inspirations throughout, throughout your career? Uh, do you know what? I, I, I don't know. And it can be from coaching or it can be family. I had uh, Chris Casper on a few weeks ago, said his mother. But then I also had Giovanni Costantino, who, used, who was Hungary's assistant manager last year in the Euros. He said mm. uh, Colombia's manager from 1990. And he's Italian and it... it it blew me away, that answer. It was probably one of the strangest I got. So who are your inspirations in life? Terry Cooper was a great inspiration to me when I'm, he managed me at uh, Exeter. Frank Burrows, when I was at Cardiff, he taught me how to win. Uh, he, he taught me that, you know, I need to be part of a team. Um, Steve Coppel, I learned a lot from Steve when I watched him uh, manage. Um, you know, I've got, you know, there's a lot of people out there, really. Um, but those three guys were really good for me. Um, two as a player, one as a, one as a, as a manager. Um, 
but you, you know, I, I've never, I've not really thought about that to be honest. Um, but I mean, Steve was was great. But he's a very quiet man. And Steve said to me, "There's a hundred percent of stuff in management." And he said, "95 percent of it, let it go. Don't even bother with it." And he's right. Some of the stuff. I mean, you know. A really good staff member doesn't bring all the stuff to the manager. And I've learned that. I never used to bring a lot of the stuff to Steve unless I thought it was really important. Mm. But I, don't, I don't want to keep putting it on him, putting it on him. So I learned some, a, lot, a lot of good stuff from, from Steve. Steve Koppel was actually one of my grandfather's favourite ever players. when he used That's to play right. Yeah, and he always talks about uh, the, I think it's 19, is it 77 or 74 uh, cup final against Southampton where Southampton, Laurie McMenamin and Southampton actually beat my 76, was it? Might have been, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he always talks about how he remembers how McMenamin dealt with Steve Koppel and completely nullified Man United. He always tells me the story. Every few months, he he, he loved Steve Koppel as a player. So, I mean, he was a great player, Steve. Yeah, so I can, I can tell him now that. Yeah, he's what, funny. What a great man he is. <laughs> when, I was at, um, when I was at Arsenal, Don Air, who was coach at the time, he said, oh, you want to play like Steve Koppel? And I did a joint thing Steve and I to supporters at Reading recently and I told him that he's laughing <laughs> you know they always compare me and Steve as the managers because I we both got and I'm thinking well, don't make comparisons Steve's just a great guy and a great manager full stop you know mm-hmm. just that I'm not buying into all that comparison nonsense I just don't like it but he, yeah, yeah I, we're, he's a funny man as well yeah he's good he's good fun he's got a dry sense of humour Brian, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today and being so honest and open. I really enjoyed this chat. And I know for a fact, I learned a lot and I know the listeners will too. So thank you for coming on. It wasn't very tactical, was it? It didn't need to be. We learned so much about <laughs> management in the Premier League, managing the championship and dealing with certain situations. That's what the podcast is about. The podcast is about teaching yeah. the listeners and, and you absolutely did teach us. You definitely taught me a few lessons today. Thanks, thank Adam. You. I appreciate that. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for coming on, Brian. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm incredibly grateful that Brian joined us here today at the, on the TFA podcast to discuss his role as manager of Reading Football Club, as well as many other things, including his, his battle with mental health and dealing with the media and suffering through, you know, missing out on promotion in 2011 before getting promoted eventually a year later. Brian was truly a wonderful guest. Took an hour out of his time to speak to me here. I learned a lot from him, and I certainly hope he did too. You can find us on Twitter at Total Analysis, and you can find myself on Twitter at AceWoodley24. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you again next week when we have another very exciting guest on the show. Goodbye for now. <laughs>